In our backyard, we have a few seating areas where chairs surround fire pits or take in a view of a nearby mountain. Nothing fancy, but just a few ideal settings to engage in some great discussions. Hey, it's Andy, and this is the 66th episode of BNP, Biblical Narratives Podcast. detail, historical context that puts you in the action. Now, today's episode feels a little different than what you might be used to in this podcast, but don't be scared. Different can be good, like calamari being served to a guy from Kansas back in the 70s. It wasn't exactly a popular mid-American dish. I know, it's just what came to mind. Besides, I love calamari. Luke's writing of Acts covers nearly 30 years of history within 28 chapters, providing us with the highlights of various God moments during the church's infancy. By no means are the God sightings throughout the early church limited to what happened here in Acts, as we only follow those apostles who provided Luke with the source material. While we love those pivotal preaching moments from the likes of Peter, Stephen, and Paul, we might find ourselves wondering more about the everyday conversations Paul would have had with those who are learning more about the faith. What would he say at meals? What were the discussions about? Well, today's podcast is all about such a backyard discussion between Paul and Lydia's family, shortly before they would all be baptized. How does the discussion go? What will they talk about in Lydia's backyard? Well, stick around. And with that, let's get started. Opening her front door, Lydia's smile grows wide upon seeing her guests arrive. Oh, I am so glad you've come. Thank you, thank you, she exclaims. With bodies huddled up behind her, Lydia turns around and begins introducing each member of her extended family. One by one, members of the household trickle out of the front door and surround their five guests. Silas and Paul exchange a, whoa, this is a big family glance, as more members continue to pour outside of the front door. Luke grins at the scene. He takes a step back to see how big the house is and wonders how such a huge family can survive in such a small home. Maybe there's a really big basement, he thinks to himself. Walking up to Lydia, he then asks, so how many people actually live here? Um, Lydia thinks aloud. I think we have 21 living here right now. Joining their conversation, Gaius remarks, Where do they sleep? Lydia laughs at Gaius's puzzlement. Wherever we can, she says with a sigh. Wherever we can. With a wide gesture, she then says, You are our guest, so please, if you would join us in the back. The five follow Lydia around the side of the home to see an impressive array of trees, At a nicely appointed table, the five recline along with key members of the family. Children and younger family members flit about, coming and going and trying to learn more about their five guests. Surprised by the contrast between the home's tiny front and the spacious area in back, an impressed loop looks around and nods to the others. Upon finishing their meal, Lydia yells out for a group of teenage girls to come and clean off the table. They quickly rush out to tend to the table and remove any of the remaining dishes. One of the older girls lingers and stares at Timothy. Noticing the prolonged stare, Timothy blushes and looks in the other direction. 
Witnessing the exchange, Lydia yells out to redirect her younger sister. Hey, go and take these inside and get things cleaned up. Seeing the humor in the awkward exchange, Luke and Gaius raise their eyebrows at one another and share in a private laugh. Lydia then looks at Paul and says, What you said at the river? Paul comes to attention as he sees a woman of purpose reclined across the table from him. That someday, Lydia says while letting this phrase linger in the air, has begun. Studying the woman across from him, Paul notes that she has a great sense of recall and has thought much about what he shared earlier. He looks up to see the lower hanging branches from the small grove of oak trees that sprawl above them and adjusts himself to sit more upright. Paul looks up at Lydia and shares, When Silas and I were traveling on the road that connects Cilicia and Galatia, we hiked through a mountain pass. Ahead, we saw how the road was interrupted by a landslide. Thousands of boulders had fallen from the mountain above and made their way to the ground, making the road impassable for a time. The landslide interrupted the lives of anyone who wished to get from one place to another. Looking intently back at Paul, Lydia's face betrays a look of confusion. Paul studies her and lets the thought linger. Finally, Lydia says, I guess I don't understand where this is going. Paul smiles and says, The rock slide was caused by a single unsteady rock that toppled and impacted another unsteady rock, which toppled and impacted other rocks. Eventually, with an increasing number of these rocks fully in motion, there would be nothing that could stop them from running their course. Paul pauses for a moment and continues, The kingdom of heaven has been in place all along. It's what created and still governs the universe, things we can see and things we can't. Beings we can see, like you and me having flesh and blood, and beings we cannot see, like the angelic realm. While the kingdom of heaven set up the world as we know it, the king allowed humanity to function with a high level of independence. But that doesn't mean the king abandoned the world altogether. Instead, this king has patiently waited for the right moment to interact with humanity and to offer a glimpse into the kingdom and its activities. Lydia is wide-eyed and doesn't see her brothers or father who sit down next to her. Paul looks up and smiles at the curious new faces that have joined the conversation. He goes on, Yes, this king has interacted with humanity on a number of occurrences. Most curious is in the way he interacted with a single individual who would leave his extended family and go to an undisclosed location where he would take up his future residence. When he and his wife arrived at this new location over a thousand miles away from home, the king showed up again and made them a promise. They will have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the earth. Paul quietly laughs at this and goes on. They were old and childless at the time. Anyway, they had a son, and the son would be given the same promise. And then he had a son as well, and this son had twelve sons, and these twelve sons would build huge families, all of whom would be covered by the same promise given to their great-grandfather. The nation began, though it wouldn't become a nation until the king of the kingdom of heaven would quietly raise up a man to rescue these people out from slavery. Yes, though a very large family, they were all enslaved under Egyptian rule. This man who rescued this large family did so because the king of the kingdom of heaven, remember, the creator and sustainer of all the universe, made himself known to him. 
He had an encounter with the ruler of the kingdom of heaven, and that is what was needed to rescue this very large family called Israel. Recognizing Israel's story, Lydia and her family began piecing together where Paul is headed. Looking around, Paul sees how his audience has grown. He sips from his cup of wine and continues, Once rescued as a people and before getting, well, somewhat settled in the land, the king gave laws to Israel and established an agreement, a covenant. If you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be disciplined. And by the way, it will hurt. Israel agreed, and things went well for a while, a short while. Through waves of both good and bad, Israel kept on going, and the king kept to his promise to bless or discipline accordingly. In times of great discouragement, the king sent ambassadors, prophets, warning Israel of its disobedient direction. They also gave messages of hope to Israel to encourage their obedience once more. Over the years, the king made important promises to Israel through these prophets, and two key promises have especially resonated with these people. The promise of a future king who sits on David's throne, one of Lydia's brothers yells out. Paul's grin grows wider. You know of this, he asks. Lydia's brother nods and says, Lydia has shared this with me over the years. Playfully nudging her to lose her balance, he then continues, when she told us you were coming, she was so excited because you told her that the kingdom has started, something about a king who will return and rule from David's throne. Taking this as a God-sized cue, Paul says, what started out as a single promise made to a man without any children has since gathered momentum and has culminated to the coming of a single man, the future king who will return to rule the world. Wait, Lydia stops Paul. You said someday was now. Placing his hands in the air to signal a time out, Paul nods his head and says, Yes, that someday is now. But the promised king requires subjects to rule over, yes? But isn't that why Israel exists? Lydia responds with confusion in her voice. Israel was to be the king's light to the world, Paul replies. Ambassadors! The king does not want anyone left out of the kingdom of heaven. And while Israel tried to align with the desires of the king, they wandered away. Any light that was there has long since burned out. All along, the king wanted Israel's desires to match his own. But something was needed deep within the soul of Israel, of humanity, to make alignment with God possible. And that something is the Holy Spirit. Lydia's brother chimes in. I don't understand. What, what is the Holy Spirit? You remember the promised king who would sit on David's throne, yes? Paul says. Lydia's brother nods. Good, Paul replies. Now, are you familiar with another promise the same king made to the people of Israel? What do you mean, Lydia asks. I mean the problem of a new agreement the king would make with his people, Paul says. This promise was given to the prophets as well where the king would get into the souls of Israel and anyone who seeks after him and change their hearts from the inside out. I mentioned a moment ago that our king requires subject to lead, yet nobody in Israel or among any walk of life desires what the king desires. Consequently, no one would be permitted to enter into his kingdom. 
No, unless this king changed the desires of humanity and Israel, he would have a subjectless kingdom, which really is no kingdom at all. How does this king change the hearts of people? Lydia's brother asks. Well, that's the crazy part, Paul says with a giddy laugh. The king had to make the impossible possible. You understand what a sacrificial offering is, yes? Of course, the entire group says nearly in unison. We see and do this all the time. Yes, and for Israel, the king set up a very specific way to make sacrificial offerings, Paul says. Certain clean animals were used as substitutes for humanity. When a Hebrew sinned, he would take a clean animal to a specific type of priest and have the priest conduct a sacrificial offering. The animal would take the Hebrew's place and he would be forgiven and life would go on. The problem with this setup, Paul asks rhetorically, lots of repeat business, he says. Israel, the Hebrews, could never be permanently forgiven of their sins. Why? Because their hearts were not in alignment with the kings. The king did the unthinkable. The king, who is without sin, became sin for Israel and humanity and offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for sin, once and for all. No longer would a Hebrew require an animal to take his place because he had the king of the kingdom of heaven take his place. Lydia's eyes widen with astonishment. Wait, you're telling us that God, who is the king of the kingdom of heaven, came and offered himself up as a permanent sacrifice for the sins of the world? Touching his nose, Paul replies, Exactly! And because our misalignment with the king results in our death and separation from him, the king chose to die on our behalf. Stay with me here, but when God raised the king to new life, he proved to Israel and all humanity that the king was not enslaved by death. Death could not hold its grip over him. Paul goes on. He also proved that he had the power to make good on his promises, specifically his promise to begin aligning the hearts of humanity to reflect his own. While living among us, just before making his life a sacrificial offering for the misalignment of humanity, the king made another promise to those who pursue after him. He promised that the Holy Spirit would begin to reveal the kingdom of heaven to those who seek him, changing their hearts along the way. In doing this, the king is giving new life to those seeking him, aligning their desires and developing a future people who will welcome him as their eternal king. Paul says as he takes a deep breath, those who welcome him will await a resurrection just like his and spend eternity with him as loyal subjects in this coming kingdom. Whoa, Lydia's brother responds. But what does this mean for us? I mean, what are we supposed to do with all this? Well, chase after the king and let him align you to his desires, Paul responds. And it all starts with your baptism and the death and resurrection of the king who poured out his own life as an offering for you. When baptized, you will take on a new identity of one who has died with this king, Jesus of Nazareth, and has been raised to new life. Well, we're going to stop here for this week. The rock slide is the movement of the kingdom of heaven and how it will, at the right time, overwhelm the earth. But this king is a compassionate king. While he will ultimately have his way, the king invites humanity in to share this kingdom with him. 
but we first require a change in our identity. Our sin, or our misalignment with God, requires a God-sized solution, namely Jesus taking our sins upon himself and dying in our place. And in doing so, Jesus has imputed the righteousness of God upon us along with the promised Holy Spirit to change our hearts from the inside out. While I don't think we'll get into too much more of the details here, God made it possible for us to be transferred out of our current kingdom that will result in death and into his eternal kingdom that will result in eternal life. He did this through the sacrifice of Jesus himself. While we don't know the exact conversations Paul had with Lydia, we do know from his numerous letters that he had to cover a number of areas to help piece the gospel message together. What needed to be covered? Well, that just depended upon his audience and the extent of their knowledge base. Those with Jewish backgrounds, and even the knowledge base among those familiar with Jewish history, would run a wide spectrum. They would require a deeper explanation. It's likely Paul shared a story like this in a smaller group or one-on-one -on -one discussions with an aim to cover the following topics. Now, before we get into this, I have one quick side note. I've listed some key verses on the blog, and we'll just ask that you take a look at them there to do a deeper dive. So what topics would Paul cover in his discussions? Well, first, the landslide metaphor beginning with a single rock, or Abraham and his descendants. Now, whether Paul used the actual rock illustration, I'm not sure, but he often would start at the beginning of Jewish history by pointing us towards Abraham. One such example, if this was Paul, we're not totally sure, but this was very commonly done throughout the New Testament. Hebrews 11, 8-12 By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Anyways, that takes place in Hebrews 11, 8 through 12. Incidentally, just on a side note, Daniel used a similar metaphor to describe how the kingdom of heaven would overwhelm the world. Daniel 2, 44 and 45. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all those kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. The next thing Paul would cover is Israel's history, the lawful agreement or the covenant between God and Israel, and Israel's repeated failure to uphold the law and, moreover, the heart of God. And this would be true of not only Israel, but all of humanity. Third, 
God's promise to King David and how the eternal throne of a coming king and rescuer would stem from this promise. We know this as the Davidic covenant. Fourth, God's promise to Moses, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel explaining his need to forgive sin once and for all and begin changing the misaligned hearts of his subjects. We know that as the new covenant that was made possible because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Next, the sacrificial and redemptive work of God who chose to become human, namely Jesus. Understanding how redemption would take place required some knowledge of Israel's system of worship. Next, the coming Holy Spirit and how he will catalyze the new covenant promise in the age of the Gentiles. We might know it as the church age or the present age. And last, the return of the king to destroy who remain misaligned and begin his kingdom reign with his loyal subjects. Yikes, I know, there's a lot happening here, but it shows the story of God as king and how he will bring about his kingdom. So what are some takeaways here? Perhaps the clearest takeaway for me from this backyard discussion is the charge to be ready for the return of the king. A phrase used throughout the prophets is the day of the Lord, and it speaks of a time when God will bring about fair judgment upon the earth, rewarding and punishing humanity accordingly. From 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11, I'm just going to give you the highlights really quick. Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written for you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, you're not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day." We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God is not destined to us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are also doing. So that idea of being vigilant and being focused, that's going to be the issue here, right? So how do we get ready in light of the return of our king? And that's really what it comes down to as a takeaway. Be sober-minded and clearly kingdom-focused in your life. Remove the extra baggage that might lure you away from what is most important and of the greatest good. Live for the kingdom because that's where we'll be taking up our permanent residence upon our king's return. I love the words uttered by the prophet Micah, which read as follows. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Well, that's it for this week. May you walk humbly with your king, wanting what he wants. May you treat others well and try to do right by them. And in doing so, may you carry out the king's desires. 
So with that, let's move forward together.